0: Good morning. My name is Colby, and these are my friends Kaylee and Anna. This is the second Sunday of Advent. As we prepare for Christmas and long for Jesus' return, we light this candle as a symbol of our peace in Christ, who rescue us from our enemies so that we can serve him without fear. May it remind us to live in harmony with God and each other. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Old Testament reading is found in Ezekiel 34, 9-10. So, shepherds, hear the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims, I am against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable for my flock, and I will put an end to their tending the flock. My shepherds will no longer tend them, because I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and they will no longer be their food. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 6-10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 2 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we have come to honor him. The gospel of the Lord.
1: Lord Remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are the speaking God, the God who calls us out of darkness and into light, who calls us by the name of his own Son. And so we pray as we listen to the scriptures being read and being taught that you would, as that prayer said, help us to digest them. Let it Come and nourish us, but let it also challenge us and change us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Touch your neighbor and say you look a little heavier after Thanksgiving. Just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. There are no calories during Advent. That's the devil's work. Listen, you might be uh, new to this season, but Advent is... um, Advent is not another name for the holidays or Christmas. Uh, Sometimes there's a lot of angst out there about are we putting Christ back in Christmas and all that. Actually, one of the best ways to do that is to mark Advent as a separate season. So, Advent is not a synonym for Christmas, it's a season of preparation for Christmas. And in fact, in church history, Advent is kind of known as a fast season. Not that it happens quickly, but that you fast during it. I know, I know, we, we don't... It, think of the way Lent is a way of preparing for Easter. Advent is supposed to be that for Christmas. Now somewhere along the way, we've lost the fasting component of it. Maybe Christmas cookies, whatnot. So I'm not necessarily advocating fasting, fasting. But what I am inviting you into, what we are inviting you into at New Life Downtown... Is a way of making room in your schedule and making room in your life to say, this is not, this is our way of sort of protesting, pushing against the consumerism or materialism or even busyness of the season, and to say, hang on, hang on, hang on. This is a time where we prepare the way for the king to come. Amen? Amen. Prepare the way for the king to come. And so where Christmas we celebrate it, Advent is this journey toward the arrival of the king. But when we say that, we say that kind of glibly like, oh yeah, you know, we're waiting for the king to come and maybe you've been around a church for a a little while and you're kind of like, yeah, that's what we talk about. We sing these songs about a newborn king. Others of you, you're, you're newer to this whole thing, to church and to all of this Christian stuff. And so it still has a bit of strangeness for you. And you're like, these people talk about king quite a bit. Like, can we just be honest for a second? Do any of us actually want a king, right? I mean, like, deep in our bones as Americans, like, there's a reason we left. And we could say to King George in that scene in Hamilton that makes me smile every time, you know, just, you'll be back, just you wait, right? And we can say back to him, no, no, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. Like, the king thing is not in our bones. We're Americans. That was Taylor Swift, if you missed that, Um if you're doing a pop culture scorecard, that's two. Okay. <laughs> but, but we don't actually want this. America actually leads the world in the amount of entrepreneurs per percentage of population. That's a great thing. It's one of the reasons we all love America. But it also begs the question from an outsider's perspective to say, well, do we have so many entrepreneurs not just because there's opportunity but because actually none of us, ha- none of us want to work for anyone else? That maybe we do this because we're like, actually, I'm tired of this. I met a guy once who who told me how he got started into farming. And he said, I started farming because I got back from the war. And I won't name which war it is so it doesn't, you know, uh, indicate. But he said, I got back from the war. And I was like, I got tired of people telling me what to do. So I just went to farm where it's just me and the land. And sometimes that's in our bones a little bit to say, I don't want it. In our own day, in the last three years or so, There's been such a reckoning of power, a reckoning of institutions, of people who hold power, a calling to account of those who have held influence and power, that many of us are suspicious of power, and rightly so. And so when you hear of an institution of size or scale, whether it's a megachurch or a megacorp, multinational corp, all of us are sort of like, eh, I don't know. And we're skeptical because we sort of have seen from Hollywood entertainment to the business world to the church itself, we've seen people that the more powerful they become, the more they attract sort of toxic leaders. And maybe some of you have been in environments where you're like, yeah, I've experienced that. Actually, I I still am experiencing that. Over a hundred years ago, the philosopher Nietzsche talked about this power replacing truth. That there's a sense in which all that matters anymore is not, we don't ask questions of is it true or is it false, is it right, is it wrong, is it good, is it evil. Now all we ask is who said that and are they powerful? Because if this powerful person said it then I don't want none of it. And even a person on a stage right now, especially a dude on a stage, is particularly tense because you're like, I don't know bro, like I don't know about this. And we're rightly, in some ways, rightly suspicious. And the church, of course, has done its own harm in the story. So we find ourselves today talking about waiting for a king, but honestly wondering if we actually want one. Can we actually trust one? If you're sitting in the room and you've experienced the misuse of power that has caused you pain, someone else treating you poorly, You need to know this morning that the scriptures actually show that God is on your side. That God hears your cry. Very often in in Christian circles you, you hear Romans 13 just sort of dealt out. like, Well God has established every power and authority therefore just sit down and shut up. But actually there's a longer story throughout the scriptures particularly in the Old Testament. Where God says I see you rulers. I see what you're doing. I see the way you're treating people. I see the way you're, and God says the same as he looks over our world today. Our Old Testament reading this morning was from Ezekiel, but today we're going to talk about becoming kings. This sermon this morning in Advent week two is about becoming king. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Our Old Testament reading showed us that passage from Ezekiel where God is fed up with human leaders. And he basically says in these first few verses of Ezekiel 34, and if you ever feel like you need some encouragement, like does God know, does God care, like what does God think about all this stuff? Read Ezekiel 34. And you'll see that God is fed up with human leaders. And he basically says in the opening verses, you know what? I'm going to come and do the job myself. Like I'm going to do the job myself because these shepherds are corrupt. They're exploiting the people for their own gain. And we pick up right here in verse 22. God's still talking and he says, but I will rescue my flock so that they will never again be prey. I will even judge between the sheep and I will appoint for them a single shepherd and he will feed them. My servant David will feed them. Now this is an interesting reference. Obviously, Ezekiel is many generations past David. But there's an echo here of like there was something good, something true initially about David when he would fight on, when he fought on behalf of the people and put his own life on the line. But of course, echoing in their ears would have been the rest of the David story. And they're like, that story didn't end so well either because David himself was a king who mishandled power, who took advantage of another man's wife. And so God is saying, look, there's something true about this kingship that even David himself failed, but look, I'm going to come. And he says, and I will appoint a single shepherd. My servant David will feed them. He will be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be their prince. Now, this is interesting because early in the chapter, God says, I'm going to do the job myself. I'm going to become king. And then he says, but the way I'm going to become king is through a single shepherd that's finally going to treat the people right. And by the time we get to the Gospels, you know that this hope is what has been building In the hearts of the people of God. And Matthew doesn't make this question peripheral. He makes this question front and center. He puts it right in the middle of the story. Right up front at the beginning of the story rather. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David. And that's Matthew's way of saying this is the story of Jesus the Messiah. Remember, every time we see the word Jesus Christ in scripture, that's not Jesus' last name. His parents were not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, little baby Jesus Christ. Christ is his title, the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Anointed One. And Matthew is saying this is a record of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right out of the gate. The gospel opens with saying, oh, hang on a second, is this the story of God becoming king? Is this the story of God doing exactly what Ezekiel had said he was going to do? The problem is in Matthew's gospel, there was someone else who was already called the king of the Jews. And we meet him in Matthew chapter 2. It says here in Matthew chapter 2, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Now hang on for a moment. Isn't it interesting That the Gospels are concerned with the story of Jesus. But they bracket it by just telling us, oh, by the way, this happened during the rule of King Herod. It's amazing to me because if you were living in the first century, Herod would have dominated the news at the time if you were a Jew. If you were a Jew living in the first century, everything Herod said and did would have dominated the news. Did you see what Herod tweeted today? That would have been all the buzz. I heard that Herod says that we're going to. And Herod has announced that would have dominated the landscape. But here when the gospel writers are telling the story, we're not sitting here opening a book of the biography of Herod. We're sitting here reading the gospel of Jesus Christ, who ends up being the center and the star of the story, while Herod is a bit player. I think there's an instruction in here for us to recognize that in every moment of history, you can pay attention to the wrong characters. In every moment of history, you can pay attention to the wrong characters. You can say, oh, these are the people that are the movers and shakers. These are the people that tell us what God is up to. And God's like, ah, it's over here. It's over here in a manger. It's over here in this quietness of Bethlehem. It's over here in a small, unspectacular location. But we're so enamored with this. I want that. I want that. Tell me the story of that person. And he's like, I'm going to tell you the story of this person. The hidden life. If you were a Jew in the first century, you would really understand the skepticism and cynicism about power. In fact, as much as we feel it in our own age, I think the people of God in the first century would have felt it even more. After generations of wicked kings, corrupt kingdoms being overrun by oppressive empires, now even living in an uneasy peace brokered with Rome, you're sort of like very suspicious of power. You didn't need Nietzsche, you had Caesar. You looked around and you're like, this, this, is, this is a dangerous world. Do we actually trust a person in power? And so this morning I want us to c- contrast and compare Herod and Jesus's, Herod's way and Jesus' way of becoming king. How did Herod actually become king? Now, because the Gospels don't give us incredible detail into Herod's life, we actually have to dig into other historical sources and, and, and find this out. Verse 2, let's finish up Matthew 2, verse 2. And they asked, these are the Magi asking Herod. They came in and they said, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. I mean, can you imagine? Like there's a dude on the throne who's literally called the king of the Jews. And these strangers come into town and they're like, we think there's a baby being born who's the king of the Jews. Like the audacity of that. And next week we're going to see the spiral that that provokes Herod into. But who was this guy, Herod? Herod's father was a weak but brilliantly manipulative king and high priest. When his brother took power from him, He eventually sought help from Rome, and Rome was the rising power in the east. And each Roman ruler, culminating up to Julius Caesar, gave Herod's father the respected role among the Jews of being the high priest. And then he began to use that role to connive for his son. And so as part of Herod's father's ambitious plans, Herod at 25 became the governor of Galilee. Imagine that. 25 years old, daddy's connections opened up the door for you to become the governor. And Herod knew, don't waste this moment, right? Don't miss this moment. So what Herod does is he, is he decides that he is going to do the two things that Rome cares about. He's going to be really good at collecting taxes. And he's going to be really good at suppressing revolts. Any revolution, any uprising, he's like, he knows how to squash that thing right away. And he knows how to get the maximum profit. So he impresses Rome and they're grateful for him. And then if you're a little, this tiny bit of history here, you know, Julius Caesar was murdered, right? And there's four people that kind of split into two sort of halves as there's this Roman Civil War, there's Cassius and Brutus on one side, and there's Antony and Octavian on the other side. I promise this will be over in 30 seconds. And Herod decides at first, he's going to side with Cassius and Brutus. He's like, come on, guys, give, give me more power, and I'll help you win the Civil War. Except that they lose the Civil War. And Herod goes to the other team, and he's like, I've always liked you guys better. Like, you, you were really my favorite. I, I, yeah, Cassius and Brutus, they came to me. I, yeah, but Antony and Octavian, you're the real deal. I've always seen potential in you. So he switches sides after they lose the war. And he allows the Roman Senate to anoint him king of Judea. But that's not enough for Herod. Herod finds some strategic way to marry into a lineage so that he can claim the title king of the Jews. Right out of the gate in Matthew's gospel, it's a story of Jesus the Messiah, the true son of David, and this other guy who everyone else thinks is the king of the Jews. If we were to summarize it, Herod's way to power is Herod clawed his way to power. He schemed and cheated and connived his way. He clawed his way to power. But what about Jesus? The early Christians reflecting back on Jesus when they finally realized, oh, this was not just a prophet. This was not just a teacher. Like, this was God. The early Christians wrote a song about it. And what they said in this hymn is found in Philippians 2 and it goes like this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. What a line. What a lyric. Here's Herod trying to find every angle and here's Jesus who asks, I mean, what do you call the advantage of being one with the Father and one with the Spirit? And Jesus who doesn't need to find any, there is no higher angle to work here. And Jesus, it says, he did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. And when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What kind of king is this? Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, So that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. And here we are singing that song, reading that scripture, echoing that hymn. If Herod's way was to claw his way to power, Jesus' way was to empty himself of power. One is an ascent to power. The other is a descent from power. One is, i got to find a way to get higher, to get better, to gain more control. And the other is the way down, the downward descent from power. Listen to Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. because he didn't want to humiliate her, he called off their engagement quietly. Think of this. This is the story of the king of the Jews. Like, like Matthew, Like you had me with the, the David stuff. You even had me in the genealogy because it's kind of interesting. But now you're going to tell me that it's scandal and hush-hush and quietness. Like that's the story of the king? Like whoa. Herod climbs his way to prestige. Jesus descends his way into scandal. Two different kinds of kings. When I think about this, I think there are at least two implications for us, two that I want us to explore this morning, if you're taking notes. What does this mean for us? Philippians 2, verse 5, before getting into the hymn, Paul says, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say all this stuff about Jesus. It's an amazing thing, you know, because sometimes we kind of hear this this message from Christians the message is Jesus did it therefore you don't have to (laughs) but when you read the New Testament it's kind of the opposite it's like because Jesus did now in Christ by the power of the spirit we are to grow up into that become who we already are so Paul says look you're Christians, you're named after this person, you're to be many representations of Jesus, imperfect, flawed, gradually maturing, of course, all of that. But this is the mark. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. So the first thing I want us to hear this morning is that the way Jesus became king actually challenges how we think about gaining power. The way that Jesus became king. Paul says, adopt the same attitude. Well, how? The way that Jesus became king actually challenges how we think about gaining power. Now we live in a moment right now where Christians in our country are struggling because for the first time in recent memory perhaps, maybe for the first time in American history, we find ourselves on the fringes of cultural power. We find ourselves a little bit on the outside, not as much in control as we would like. But consider for a moment, That if we were to adopt the way of Herod, we would just find whoever's strong and whoever's winning and say, let's just align with them just for some short-term gains here. Now I know I'm messing with you, but I figure a non-election year is probably an okay time to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe you can remember this in 2022 and remember it again in 2024 when that comes rolling around, left or Right? The way of Herod is to say, let me find who's strong and who's winning and let the way of Herod, let the way of Rome rather, justify the end, which is just to take care. I mean, I can imagine the logic that Herod used. Look, I'm just going to curry favor with Rome because in the end that's going to allow us to have some peace. Like I know Rome's a big bad guy, but I'm just doing this to protect our Jewish religious liberties. Now I'm meddling. I mean, it'd be much nicer if we just sang cute Advent songs and lit some candles and went home, right? But I'm telling you, the church is tempted constantly to go the way of Herod. To say, well, Herod Herod did that. Herod made it work with Rome. Maybe we can make it work and it'll be okay. And the way of Jesus says, I'm not even playing. Like, I'm not even playing. I'm born in this outside place. I'm doing my work with my people. And in the end, it will put all the nations on notice. In the end, we're sitting here today reading the story of King Jesus, not the story of King Herod. But it's possible to kind of hear that and to say that it changes the way we think about gaining power. It's possible to hear that and then to say, Well, Glenn, I guess I I shouldn't be ambitious about my work. I guess I shouldn't try to be the best. I guess I shouldn't, you know... And many of you in your 20s and in your 30s, you're at this point now where you're starting to rise and you're starting to have potential and and you're wrestling with this. And maybe you've thought, look, I don't like the corporate rat race, but is the Christian option to just sort of exit all of that and to say, well, fine, I'm not playing. Is that what we do? I've sat with different ones of you to talk about this question of ambition. Like, does following the Jesus way mean that we become lazy does it mean that we become sort of, yeah, whatever will be, will be, and, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to heaven anyway. And so Christians sort of become on the side? Is, is, that, is that what we're to take out of this? I want to suggest to you that, yes, there is such a thing as selfish ambition, but there's also such a thing as godly ambition. That, that not embracing the Herod way of power doesn't mean the, the option is, oh, I'm being a good Christian by not working hard. I'm being a good Christian by, like, not caring about my job. That's how, like, untouched I am by the corporate game. It's like, wait a second, that, that doesn't really add up, does it? And some of you are, you're wrestling with that. You're like, I don't know, I've spent, I've been my whole life, I've, I've built my whole life on sticking it to the man. Do I actually want to become the man? And like, I know some of you mid, mid-30s, you're like, I don't know, I'm up for a promotion. I could make VP. I could become director. And like, I don't know if I want that. And maybe there's, there's something there worth wrestling about. But I want to suggest to you that there's a key difference between godly ambition and selfish ambition. And it has to do with our posture and it has to do with our purpose, the end goal in mind. Some decades ago, he's, he's, well, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but... There was a preacher in London named John Stott who pastored at All Souls Church for many, many years, and Stott traveled with Billy Graham on many of Graham's crusades. In fact, they called um, Stott Graham's theological advisor. John Stott had a way of taking biblical principles and saying it very simply, and Stott wrote a little bit about ambitions, godly ambition versus selfish ambition, and I want to just take a little side pause here, a little detour to explore this for a second. This is what Stott said. He said, ambitions for God, if they are to be worthy of God, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? And then he goes on, he says, Christians should be eager to develop their gifts Widen their opportunities, extend their influence, and be given promotion in their work. There it is. He says it. Desire that. Go for it. Why? Not Not now to boost their own ego or build their own empire, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. And that's the difference. That's the difference. Selfish ambition is about our glory and our good. I need to do this so I can make a name for myself. I need to do this so I can take a better vacation. I need to do this so I can, I can, I can. But godly ambition says this is about God's glory and about somebody else's good. I was talking the other day with my son and we were talking about uh, maybe having him spend some time at the farm uh, next summer with my father-in-law and and, uh, taking on some chores there and learning a little bit. And he looked at us with horror, you know, suburban kid that he is, and he goes, did I do something wrong? (laughs) You know, like, is this a punishment? And and we're like, no. There's skills that your dad never (laughs) doesn't have, you know, never learned. And we we got into this great conversation about work. And I said, buddy, I said, work is not the result of the fall. Work is a privilege to join God in making something good of the world. Make something good of the world because it glorifies God. So when you work in your, in your careers and you're, you're an engineer or you're, you are an entrepreneur or you're a financial advisor or you're a, a startup business owner or you're a barrister or you're a student, do everything, Paul says, as unto the Lord. That's what godly ambition says. It's not to make a name. It's not Herod's plan. It's Jesus' way to say, I'm going to seek this, but I'm doing this for God's glory and someone else's good. And little pastoral comment here. Are our motives going to be tainted? You bet. Every day. If you're waiting for that moment and you're in your 20s and you've got a little bit of post college idealism, post seminary idealism, if you're waiting for the moment where your motives are 100% pure, it ain't coming. But every day, if we pray and we say, God, I am yours. I am yours. That's never, that was never Herod's prayer. I am yours. Use me. <laughs> it was, You are mine. <laughs> I'll use you. But the prayer of godly ambition, the prayer of the Jesus way of power is to say, I am yours. If your way for me is death and and a cross and a career that spirals or a startup that fails, then okay. If your way is to be faithful in failure, I'll be faithful in failure. If your way is for me to be faithful in what the world calls success, then great. But I am yours. Amen? Amen? The second thing that this way of power challenges us is found in verse 6. I'll read it one more time. Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal God, with God something to exploit. Secondly, the, the, Jesus, the way Jesus became king changes how we think about God. So it challenges how we think about gaining power. But, but more powerfully maybe, more importantly, it changes actually how we think about God. You know, we often, we often hear people start a conversation with a skeptic by saying, well, who do you think made the heavens and the earth? and Let's move you from being an atheist to being a theist. And then after you say, okay, okay, there must be some God, then we can narrow the, click the lens and focus one more click and say, well, not just any God but Jesus. That's a perfectly fine approach. And in fact, is the approach that C.S. Lewis takes in Mere Christianity, if you've ever read it. And it's an approach that maybe for many of you, you're like, well, that's how I came to faith. I like generally, generically believed in God and then I came to believe in Jesus. Great. But I suspect for many of you today, that's not your wrestle with faith. In fact, going back to what we said at the very beginning, you've seen so much misuse of power and misrepresentation of Jesus that you're ready to throw the whole thing away. <laughs> you're like, I've seen the megachurch. I've seen the this, that. I've seen that. And I'm, I'm sorry. It's true. But often what happens is we encrust all these extra things on for people. And we say, well, to follow Jesus, you have to believe in this kind of political schema. And you also have to act this way and do this thing. And, this. and we crust all these extras on. And then someone's like, well, I, I don't want those things. So I guess I'm, take, I'm walking away from all of it. And there's a lot of talk today about deconstruction, but really what people, they're not really deconstructing, it's demolition. We're really saying, I'm not trying to renovate or remodel or preserve, we're really just trying to burn the whole thing down. My friend Brian Zahn wrote a book recently called When Everything's on Fire, and I'm working my way through it, about a third of the way through it. And it's about faith post a deconstruction sort of moment. And he uses this metaphor of Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris, on fire a couple of Easters ago. You remember this? And one firefighter team kind of declined going up the spire, but another team decided to go up and they saved it. And the scene in those moments was Parisians who don't believe in this God or this Jesus gathering in vigil around their beloved cathedral, Our Lady, Notre Dame, singing hymns and lighting candles. Because I wonder if, even in the most secular moment, we don't actually want a world without Jesus. We don't actually want a world without a God who looks like Jesus. Brian, I, I know if you, if you follow Brian, there might be some things that, that rankle you or get under your skin, but listen to this phrase God is like Jesus, God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. I love that quote. God is like Jesus. For some of you, you're ready to walk away from the faith because you're like, I'm tired of this, I'm tired of that, I've seen enough. And you're ready to call it by different names. It's American Christianity, it's white evangelicalism, it's all of this stuff. But Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, followed by fellow Jews... And then by Greeks and Gentiles, churches that were formed in his name in North Africa, Italy, upward towards Europe, outward towards Asia. This is not a Jesus who belongs to one ethnicity or to one nationality. This is the Jesus before whom every tribe and every tongue will bow their knee, as Philippians 2 says, and confess that he is Lord. And so the question for us today is not, do you want in on Christianity or will you join our church? The question for some of you today is, will you start with Jesus? Will you start with Jesus? What do you say to a God who looks like Jesus? What do you say to a God who looks like the one who became low into the manger journey on from there to heal the leper and forgive the sinner and raise the lame and raise the dead and go to the cross for our sins. See, the main difference between Herod and Jesus is that Jesus didn't come to dominate you. He came to die for you. What do you say to a God that looks like Jesus? As you bow your heads this morning and Aaron and the team come, I wonder if you're here this morning and you're Hanging by a thread with this whole faith thing. And you're like, I I really don't know, Glenn. I, I I just want to invite you to look at Jesus again this Advent. To behold Jesus again. There's good questions that we'll wrestle through and maybe you have questions about young earth, old earth, all the stories in the Old Testament. What hell is actually going to be like? We'll wrestle through all that. And you'll discover that there is a church historic and a church global that thinks very differently about some of these things than maybe you were raised to believe. But before you walk away from all of it, look again at Jesus. Look again at Jesus. What do you do with a God who looks like Jesus? She you bow your heads this morning. Jesus, we want to behold you. So that we can change the way that we think about God. It changes the way we imagine a, a lawgiver in the sky. Or the one who became flesh. Jesus, we want to see you again so that you can change the way we think about our own use of power in our work and school and relationships and life. Draw us near again to behold you, to see you, to trust in you. Sing this old chorus with us.
0: Jesus, Jesus, how I... Trust how I've proved him more Oh Jesus,
1: Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to Come trust Come on with all your heart now Jesus time now sing that chorus Jesus Jesus how I trust him how